Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the biggest political stories of the week with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. Coming up, we'll be talking to former Deputy Prime Minister Damien Green, who this week was one of a group of senior Tories to pile pressure on the government over the UK's policy for helping those fleeing Ukraine. But first, joining me to discuss the crisis in Ukraine after Russia's invasion and other big issues in Westminster this week is our political editor Kate Proctor and political reporter Anna Langford. Starting with you, Ellie, talk us through the latest developments as we record this on Thursday afternoon. So Liz Truss has been in Lithuania. She's just been speaking right before we went on and was saying foot on the gas to uh, deal with the situation with Russia, saying Putin must fail. And she announced that next week, USA, Canada, Ukraine are all going to be going to the EU for a big meeting to try and sort this situation out. And I believe Ben Wallace is also in Estonia today as well. Mm. Yeah, it's quite a big, um, it's quite a big move. Obviously, we've left the EU, but now Liz Truss is going to be joining the EU Council. Kate, what, what did you make of it? Yeah, I think it's true that we're um, now trying to form these partnerships again with our European neighbours and that seems to be working pretty well at the moment. I think Britain, when it comes to military matters and defence, maintains a level of respect from other EU nations. So it's not too difficult for us to slot right back in and be part of that group. But I think something that that struck me today was... um, you know, the UK is so firm on there not being a no-fly zone. That was a request that was made of Ben Wallace on his visit today in Estonia. We're asked about this a lot, but, you know, the British are really firm on this. They're saying, absolutely not. We're not going to engage in that because if you roll out a no-fly zone, then that means, you know, potentially you're going to have to defend it, which could mean a British plane shoots a Russian plane out of the sky. Right, and, and as well as potentially sort of nuclear war. Yeah. Ben Wallace also was clear earlier this week that actually... A no-fly zone could affect Ukraine more than it affects Russia, essentially, because a lot of the bombardments taking place is Russian missiles being flown. And one of Ukraine's key defences is being able to send planes to take out these kind of Russian attack points and and these convoys that we're seeing. So it's kind of been a a pretty hard and fast policy. But it's interesting, I suppose, that Ben Wallace was asked again about it. It does seem as though it is the kind of the the big thing that certain people are still pushing for. They definitely are. So you've you've got the two things. You've got the economic sanctions. And there's always more that can be done in that regard. And especially in the UK, sending out a strong message to, you know, oligarchs and the wealth that, you know, swills around London. And at the same time, you do have this request for this no-fly zone. But we would counter that, the British government would counter that by saying, you know, we're giving lots of defensive weapons already, they're being used in Ukraine, they're already being used against the Russians. So that is our contribution. Yeah. And as NATO's a defensive alliance, therefore, that kind of makes sense. There's been lots of talk about kind of solidarity with Ukraine amongst the countries in the West. Obviously, we had a big moment in Parliament this week in the House of Commons, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK was given a standing ovation. It was quite an extraordinary moment. Kate, you were there in the press gallery. Can you go over a bit of that? It was really emotional and it really took us by surprise. I saw the photographer coming in, so I knew that something must be happening. And then the speaker suddenly said, we're joined today by the Ukrainian ambassador who um, had kind of been sitting there quite anonymously and then stood up and there was this huge round of applause and that came from all MPs. And then we had journalists standing up as well, actually, and, and clapping as well. And this round of applause went on for such a long time and he was sort of bowing his head and like holding his hands a bit and I have to be honest I did cry (laughs) (laughs) and um, I don't cry very often in the chamber in fact I think you can only other one one time I've cried before (laughs) I just couldn't help it the gravity of this and I think you, you follow it all the time every twist and turn the images you've seen about what's happening in Ukraine is so dramatic and you know, there's the ambassador who's essentially there to represent his country. And there was so much love and solidarity for him 
in the room. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was sitting next to someone who kept saying, Kate, are you okay? I was like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. But I did spot another male journalist wiping a tear from his eye. So I didn't feel... I didn't feel so bad. Yeah. I had solidarity amongst the emotional journalists well, as well. Well, I've, I've been brought to tears a few times in the <laughs> Commons Chamber. That was normally trying to cover Brexit votes back in the, the day <laughs> rather than anything else. But um, one of the big issues, obviously, is, uh, is sanctions and whether the UK is going far enough and fast enough. Obviously, the original kind of set of sanctions were criticised for not going far enough. The Foreign Office has said that they're working through this list. The Prime Minister mentioned a list at Prime Minister's Questions. We're yet to, to see that. But, Ellie, there seems to be a bit of a development in terms of whether we're able to go fast enough. There's been talk of whether that legally we're able to and whether we're actually going to... People like Roman Abramovich, whether there's been lots of calls to see him sanctioned and others, are we actually going to be able to do so? And, and number 10, kind of push back against this idea that, that actually the, the legal system isn't going to allow us to do so? Yeah, so this morning the Times were reporting and the National Crime Agency and Foreign Office have been having troubles. They're struggling to find the legal justification to sanction a lot of these big oligarchs, including Roman Abramovich, as you mentioned um, who owns Chelsea Football Club. But like you said, Downing Street are saying that this is not a, a thing at all. They're really pushed back against it. They're saying that this is you know, the largest packet of sanctions that we've ever seen and that more will be coming. But as you said, we still don't know what those sanctions will be, who will be sanctioned. And there has been a lot of criticism from Labour and from you know wider public of the speed of these sanctions and are they going fast enough to actually help Ukraine? Because if we haven't sanctioned Roman Abramovich by now when will we right and there's lots of criticism that actually if you if you say you're going to sanction people but you actually don't get there that that gives people time to you know effectively get their affairs in order start to sell properties get rid of their yachts divest all of their investments in the UK and ultimately those sanctions won't actually be very useful we, we heard there's talk of a list of 100 names so far. I think 12 people, have individuals have been sanctioned so far. So clearly the government does need to go faster if it wants to be to be effective. Um, I just wonder whether you think they're going to be able to. Well, they're suggesting this morning that they aren't. And I think you're completely right that those 88 people are at the moment. They probably know who they are. They're right. probably aware that the government is aware of them. And they're going to be tidying up their affairs as we speak. I mean, Roman Abramovich is currently trying to offload Chelsea to to someone else and is willing to wipe out billions of pounds in loans, get it out of his hands quickly. So if that's what he's doing, I assume, and he has not even been named as someone who has been sanctioned or will be sanctioned, you can imagine that the others are doing the same. So by the time they get to them, they might have all, you know, packed up and left and might be back in uh, back in Russia. Right, yeah, and there's criticism that the, the EU has gone further. They sanctioned a large number of individuals in the UK. And there's been criticism that the UK has not been able to go as fast as the EU and, and America. I just want to, Kate, what your thoughts were kind of on and whether the, the government's kind of explanation of that kind of holds water. I think Boris Johnson's very reticent in terms of naming individuals. We saw in the House of Commons when he was at PMQs that... He didn't want to go down the route of talking about individuals' affairs. And I'm not sure that's really going to wash for much longer. I think critics would say that because the Conservative Party has taken donations, even quite recently from Russian nationals, I would imagine, you know, the Conservative Party in their defence would say the money that we've taken are from taxpayers, that we, it's legitimate, you know, they will have all the reasons why mm. that money is, is sound and it's fine to take as a donation. But, you know, critics will be pointing out that 
you know, money of perhaps Russian origin has ended up with the Conservative Party. So they need to be very clear as to what they're planning on doing to kind of separate themselves from this kind of insinuation that basically the Conservative Party takes money from Russia. It's a really bad thing that they've got sort of hanging over their heads. And I think that's something that they need to, uh, to sort out quite quickly. I think if Boris Johnson can show some quite firm leadership on that, then he might be able to give the impression that the party is doing more to move more quickly. But I think, you know, Labour had a good point. One of the things is introducing a list of property and the list of who the actual beneficial owners are, but that might not come in for another 18 months, which is a ridiculous amount of time. As Ellie said, people can wrap up their affairs and head out of London in that time. So I think the government's got to move much more quickly on that. I think 18 months would just be unacceptable. And, you know, he's got a lot of people within his own backbench who are very, very sceptical about Russia, people who have been very critical for a long time. And particularly when it comes to donations, I think they're going to have to start, you know, giving some answers or giving some better explanations as to exactly what the links are there. Right. Yeah. And there's been talk of whether we're going to start sort of seizing oligarchs' mansions and, and giving them to Ukrainian refugees. I think we're still quite a long way away. I mean, from that's, that not so gonna <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. This is Britain. <laughs> it is. It's true. It would, I think it would be. We're not that kind. No. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on then, obviously it's been a pretty grim week watching the, the situations unfold, but also it's been quite a strange week as a reporter to kind of follow the invasion of Ukraine by, by Russian troops and seeing it kind of play out on social media, on TikTok. We're seeing lots of kind of these strange videos of people teaching uh, Ukrainians how to drive abandoned Russian tanks. And uh, we're seeing kind of... Um, Zelensky, former comedian and now Ukrainian president, become this sort of uh, unlikely sex symbol. Um, I just wondered, I, you know, as, as reporters who've been trying to cover this stuff, how you kind of felt watching it through this kind of slightly strange TikTok prism? I mean, it's quite bizarre, all these videos that have been surfacing of this man that is currently leading the fight against Ukraine. There's one of him playing a piano with his, or pretending to play a piano with his genital. There's another one of him winning Ukrainian Strictly Come Dancing. And he was, Zelensky was the voice of Paddington Bear in the Ukrainian version. Right. And it's very, very bizarre contrast seeing all of these videos come out and everyone absolutely adoring him while he's also, you know, got a gun out and is on but the front line. I think he's kind of tailor-made for a, for a British sort of middle-class audience, isn't it? He, like, he's, he really he is. He won their version of Strictly Come Dancing and he was the voice of Paddington Bear. I you know, <laughs> I think that's kind of, a, uh, unless he started playing Crown Green Balls, I don't think there's anything else he could do to sort of uh, endear himself. Um, Kate, what, what have you been, what have you been uh, what's been kind of caught your eye in terms of the, the, the coverage? Well, I'd say that it's been vast and non-stop and obviously we're used to this constant age um, of, you know, user content and social media videos all the time. And I think as a reporter, for me, I've had to take a step back because you could be watching every day. It's thousands of images and it can get really confusing. So I like to try and peg my day. So I'll check back in every couple of hours or so to try and just get like the staging posts of the day. I've been really struck by the stuff that's on TikTok, particularly about Zelensky. He has got this like global appeal that's just completely grown in the past week. And I think as well... As journalists, our work has been vastly improved by social media. So, Mm. you know, I've been speaking to a Ukrainian teenager for the past week and we've been doing that over Telegram. And I've been getting, you know, updates really when he's been on the road trying to get out of Kiev. And I think, you know, that's really amazing. And that's different to the Afghanistan airlift where we didn't have the same social media spread. You didn't have people with smartphones who could share stuff so easily. So I feel like even sitting in London, I've been able to 
get really personal stories very easily because of social media. Yeah. So one of the biggest issues facing the West in the days since Putin's troops rolled into Ukraine is how to help people displaced by the violence. The UN estimates more than a million people have already left Ukraine as shelling has stepped up in recent days and civilians have been targeted in what Prime Minister Boris Johnson said already amounted to war crimes. The UK said it is offering potential sanctuary to the family of Ukrainians already in the UK, for which the government estimates up to 200,000 people could be eligible. The scheme expands on the government's original refugee programme after criticism it didn't go far enough. But those seeking to come here must still have close family connections, and the government is refusing to waive all normal visa requirements for those fleeing the war-torn country, as the EU has done. Earlier this week, a group of senior Tory MPs wrote to Boris Johnson, calling for the Home Office to go further, not just for those with family here. This is not another migration crisis, this is a crisis of war, they wrote. This is not business as usual, we need sincere and immediate support for the Ukrainian people. One of the organisers of the letter was Damien Green, leader of the influential One Nation group of centrist Conservatives and a former Deputy Prime Minister in Theresa May's government. I spoke to him earlier about whether the UK should be more generous for those fleeing Putin's bombs, as well as what he has made as the past week. Obviously we're into kind of the, the eighth day of the, the Russian invasion. I just wondered what your thoughts were on the past week as we've been seeing this, this unfold on our screens. I think the past week has been the most dramatic and dramatically awful week in international politics since 9-11, really, because it's that degree of changing the rules. Uh, the fact that you know, Russia will launch a full-on ground war against another European country doing all the disgusting things they're doing, firing missiles into blocks of flats and all of that, means that ev everything that's so the assumptions that lie behind a lot of foreign policy have to be torn up. We have to start again. Obviously, the Ukraine situation itself is is terrible, but you know, longer term, it, it's inevitably, I think, going to mean more defence spending in all uh, Western countries. It's going to have to revive NATO, and you know, NATO is going to have to stand firm because one assumes Putin will follow this with other measures against bordering countries, many of whom are, of course, members of NATO, who we you know, we are pledged to defend and will have to do so. Right. And uh, then essentially he's not going to stop at this. He'll, he'll want to just kind of push forward further. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's I mean, if you, you know, everyone has gone back to, to reading what he actually says. And while and a lot of it is about this sort of nostalgic romanticism that, that Ukraine and Russia are basically one country, which I think every Ukrainian would give you the correct answer to. It also, clearly, he wants to recreate the Soviet Union territory. So he's more or less absorbed Belarus already. Ukraine is next on his list. He will now be looking at the Baltic countries. And as I say, they're members of NATO. We have got to stand by them. Yeah, and as you talked about those kind of distressing scenes that we've seen, there's been more shelling of cities in the past couple of days that's led to to more people trying to flee Ukraine. I think the UN said it's at least a million people already. You know, has the UK done enough to sort of welcome those people coming? Well, we're, we're getting there. As earlier in the week, I, I was part of a group, the One Nation Caucus of Conservative MPs that wrote to the Prime Minister saying we wanted a, a flexible and pragmatic a refugee policy. We were particularly concerned that if all you do is try and tweak the current immigration rules, then you will end up letting people in who've got some kind of existing connection with Britain, whether whether through family or some other means. And actually, that that doesn't cut it uh, with the scale of this refugee crisis. We need to be 
able to, to play our part in helping refugees who may have had no previous connection with this country. And that's what we were urging the government to do. And they have announced this humanitarian sponsorship uh, pathway, which would allow that kind of thing to happen. Perhaps, understandably, all the details of that are not available, so they've not announced those yet. Mm. So I'm eagerly awaiting what what this amounts to, because I hope that that will be something that, that not only allows us to take in more refugees, but also reacts to what is the habitual characteristic generosity of spirit of the British people when, when faced with a crisis elsewhere in the world. I've, I've had lots of emails from constituents saying, what can we do to help? Is there anything practical we can do? And I think we need to tap into that public mood. Overall, do you think the UK should be more generous in these kind of things? Obviously, we should maybe mirror the EU policy, which has allowed many more sort of people in. And do you think that what people around the world are thinking when they see the UK not extending the same policies that other countries are? Well, I think I think we will. I think I think you know, obviously, we, you know, we have to get there in stages. But you know, Britain traditionally is 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 generous in in times of crisis, and I'm sure we will continue to be so but yeah, we need to make sure that 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 actually happens right yeah i mean pretty patel talked about she sort of cited security reasons as a reason why we couldn't sort of waive all visas and allow people with no prior connection to the uk to arrive what did you make of that as an argument i, I that's that's a good argument i mean we, you know, we don't we don't need to somehow project sort of non-existent fears on ourselves we've seen it happen you know the russians sent people to salisbury to murder someone on british soil so absolutely, if we just say, you know, come here, whoever you are, then given the current state of Russia, they would absolutely use that as a way of infiltrating people into this country, perhaps to discredit the Ukrainian diaspora, as well as to cause misery in this country. So yeah, I get the point that when someone comes here, we need to know who they are, basically. Mm. That's what we need to know, and that they are a genuine Ukrainian refugee. But beyond that, all, you know, all, all the other bureaucracy of, of visa fees and things like that, I think is is not necessary in terms of responding to this immediate crisis. And we have to acknowledge that there will be practical points as well. If we get a few hundred thousand people coming here, I mean, my, my guess is, as you, as you say, the, there's already a million refugees. You know, that number will increase very much, I fear. You know, you may have two or three million Ukrainians outside Ukraine. Most of them will want to stay in the region, but some of them will, will want to come to Britain. So it will be some hundreds of thousands. And, you know, we've got to find places to house them. And if they're going to be here for some time, you know, they'll, most of them will be women and children. So those children will perhaps need education and all of that. You know, all these kind of practical things need to be in place as, as fast as possible after they arrive. And like you say, we haven't seen the full details of, of how far the government is going to go on this. When we do, perhaps next week back in Parliament, is there any sort of move that you think that the One Nation Conservatives, you, you mentioned that group, are going to try and do to push the government if they aren't going as far as you guys want? Is there anything else you guys want to, to do to keep this kind of going? Obviously, because it's unlikely that we're going to see an end to people wanting to leave Ukraine and obviously to come west into Europe and to the UK. We will certainly want to keep this going. We will see what the government says and respond accordingly. I mean, there are other people apart from the government who we're, we're, we're trying to encourage to act. My colleague Caroline Noakes has, has written an article suggesting that maybe some of our universities could uh, let in Ukrainian students who have, have had their courses 
interrupted because they obviously can't carry on doing them in the Ukraine. And as the days pass, we, we may come up with more ideas like that so that it's, it's not just the government's responsibility that the whole of British society and other British institutions maybe can play a part in, in as I say, showing the generosity of spirit that absolutely is the, the mainstream view in this country about how we should respond to the Ukraine and actually do something practical about it. Mm. Do you think that, you know, within, obviously there's a number of, of Tory MPs who signed that letter, do you think you know, there's anything you guys can do in parliamentary terms, perhaps joining up with, with the Labour or opposition MPs to, to try and kind of force the government into something if we if you don't think that, you know, in the coming days they are going to go far enough? Well, we, we don't have to do that yet. I mean, it, it was gratifying that within 24 hours of, of, of sending a letter that we saw some action on behalf of the government and I get the impression that we're we're pushing at a relatively open door. That this is this is not something where it requires you know, parliamentary drama or rebellions like that. I think, in in a sense, the the cross party consensus that has established on the wider Ukraine issue, mm. as well as on the issue of refugees, does does extend to to ministers as well. So it's a question of of getting it right rather than actually having to to change the direction of travel. Yeah, I mean, you talk about cross-party consensus. There has been a lot of unity within Parliament this week. Um, obviously, we saw those scenes at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday when everyone stood up and applauded the Ukrainian ambassador. A lot of that was also a discussion at that session about sanctions and whether the government is going far enough. We've we've heard a lot of kind of strong rhetoric from the Prime Minister and from Cabinet Ministers, but it doesn't appear as of yet that we've been able to match that in terms of the sanctions that we've laid out. Would, do you want to see the government go further and faster to try and have more asset freezes and target some, some high-level individuals in the UK? I certainly think faster. And, and I think at the moment, it's not so much a question of, of finding new people to target, though that may well be desirable. It's actually being able to take effective action against those who have already been targeted. There is, there is a feeling out there that Britain is being quite slow at getting hold of the assets and, and that somehow the argument is that it's it's legally very difficult to do so. Mm. And I'm not quite sure why that should be, but what I do, I do think quite strongly, and, and Parliament could play a role here, is that if for some reason our laws are in, in such a condition that these can be dragged out in the courts. Arguments can be dragged out for months on end while presumably assets are being quietly moved away. Then it may be that we need different legislation for this particular circumstance. And in which case that cross-party consensus that we've seen will be very useful because presumably we could pass such legislation very quickly. Right, yeah, actually, and on that, we know that on, on Monday, the Economic Crime Bill, which is the much-delayed legislation, is going to come to the Commons and hopefully will be the government wants it to be passed all in one day. There's kind of issues, though, that was raised again in the Commons this week about whether there's going to be sort of an 18-month grace period once someone is, is slapped with any of these measures. And there was discussion about whether that was going to be amended, perhaps an updated version of the legislation wouldn't see that happen. Would you be in favour of that? Yes, I think I think anything that prevents the sanctions being effective is clearly hugely undesirable for all sorts of obvious reasons in in the current circumstances. So I think you know, that will be a point where parliamentary scrutiny is quite important, even if we're, if we're doing it quickly, to make sure that the the practicalities are there so that it's, it's not just a case of passing the legislation and feeling good about ourselves, that actually 
some you know, unpleasant things need to happen to people mm. who are close to Putin. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the fact is that we, lots of people are discussing about whether someone like Roman Abramovich should have his, some of his assets frozen. But the talk is that legally it's very difficult to find a, a, what's deemed kind of a, a good enough reason to do so. Do you think that actually perhaps our legal system is set up in a way that isn't conducive to getting these things done quickly? In the sense, we try and sort of gold plate everything. But actually, when it comes to this kind of situation, it's not fast enough when we're in a fast moving situation. I mean, it seems to me that there's two different problems here. There's, absolutely, we need to be able to move fast in situations like that. And if, if for some reason the law prevents us doing that, then then we should look at that. I have to say I'm slightly more wary of this thought that, oh, well, you know, it needs to be written so that we can we can slap on names even if there's not much evidence against it. I, I, mm. I would hold hard at that point. I mean, we all know Roman Abramovich because he owns Chelsea, basically. But if, if, if there is not evidence that, that links him to funding Putin or, or doing any of the other nefarious things that a lot of these oligarchs do, then let's not write a law just because someone is famous. So, you know, one of the things we're defending here is the rule of law. So so let's not make our law arbitrary. I mean, with that constraint, and then absolutely we need to make sure that we can act quickly and effectively. But let's not rush into making bad law, which it's it's quite easy to do as well. Yeah, I think that's perhaps some of the fear with trying to pass something like the Economic Crime Bill in a single day. I think there are fears that it might not end up being sort of perfect legislation and effectively it's just to try and get something done now to be seen, to be to be doing something. Actually, it perhaps should have been around and perhaps should have been tabled long before this. Well, I mean, the, the fact that, as you say, it has been around for a long time means that the issues that lie behind it have been pretty extensively aired. So there is a degree of expertise. It, it's not just legislation coming out of the blue, but the general rule that if you pass legislation in a hurry in the face of a crisis, then you might not get it right is, is, is worth having in the back of our minds at all times. Obviously, like you say, it's been a, it's been a pretty bad week. It's not setting itself up to be another good week as we as we go forward. We know that Putin wants to continue his his assault on on the Ukrainian cities. Where do you think this kind of is going to go in the, in the coming days? And what would you like to see the UK and other allies in the West do to try and sort of prevent further further destruction? I'm not a military expert, so I I'm, I would just be responding to what I've read and seen and heard. It's hard to imagine that in the end, with with all the Russian might, that if they're prepared to continue to behave as appallingly as they have done, then they will make you know, military progress and they may be able to take control of big cities. But every military expert I've spoken to and listened to says that even with the massive forces they've got at their disposal, they haven't got enough to occupy a hostile country. And boy, is Ukraine a hostile country to the Russians now. So there's the grim prospect of a, a long insurgency. It will be another Afghanistan for Russia and Putin. And although Putin deserves that, I don't think the people of Ukraine deserve that. So therefore, Britain and A, let's keep working closely with our allies. I'm glad we're going along with the Americans to a conference uh, with the European Union countries uh, in the next few days to discuss next steps. But and, and let's keep arming the Ukrainians to continue their, their fight where they, they've not only been heroic, but they've been, I think, for most people, surprisingly effective at, at slowing down uh, the Russian advance. And, and part of that is because they are getting top of the range weapons from countries like ours. And we absolutely must continue to do that, uh, as well as continuing to fund the countries 
on the edge of Ukraine who are going to bear the bulk of the refugee crisis, and as well as obviously providing straightforward humanitarian aid to keep people alive inside Ukraine. Back with me now is, is Kate Proctor to talk about what's coming up in the week ahead. The major kind of issue that's facing obviously the, the UK and its response to the Ukraine crisis is, is sanctions. On Monday, we're going to see the long-awaited economic crime bill being rushed to Parliament finally by the government. They're going to try and get it all through stages passed uh, in a single day. Uh, but one of the big issues at the moment is that part of it is going to allow for those who are hit with these measures up to 18 months for them to come in and whether that's going to allow them time to be able to divest some of their assets in the UK before they're able to be to be hit by them. On Wednesday at Prime Minister's Questions, Keir Starmer asked for the, that time limit to be shut down. Boris Johnson appeared to agree. So we've talked about cross-party unity. Do you think we're going to see that uh, loophole or that kind of element of the bill change when it comes to Parliament on Monday? It's possible that the government might amend its own bill on Monday. But if not, then I think we'll probably see a form of words or a strong commitment at least to bring timescales down because Labour are definitely going to back this bill. They think it's important. Right. But I definitely know from speaking to MPs that it is this uh, length of time, as we've previously discussed, it gives the exact people the bill's trying to target time to sort their affairs out. Labour are unhappy about that. That's something they really want to push on. But right now, it is a good sort of example of Commons unity. Both sides just want to get this bill through and yeah. get it done. And it's kind of interesting, I think, with because there's been a lot of call for this piece of legislation for quite a long time. The government's kind of delayed and pushed it. And even last month suggested it was going to be in the next parliamentary session, which obviously is later in the year, with obviously the escalating crisis, it's been, it's been pulled back. What are the kind of the key elements of it that I think that people have been calling for? One of the really important things are the unexplained wealth orders. So this is when, you know, someone is spending mega bucks and uh, it's really difficult to trace where that money has come from. Sometimes uh, I think there's been stories about people spending excessively in shops in London and that kind of really gives a bit of a red flag to the authorities that something isn't quite right. So the thing at the moment is if you slap someone with an unexplained wealth order, the legal back and forth can be extremely costly. Yeah. So they often are appealed and that can end up with a huge amount of onus on basically the National Crime Agency to prove the case. These bills can end up being in the millions. So the idea is that you'd be able to like smooth out the process that it's so it's easier basically yeah. to give someone this order without this big sort of legal back and forth. So the idea is in theory we should be able to get more unexplained wealth orders being put on certain individuals and that would stop some of their spending and it would also force them to give an explanation as to where the money has come from and ultimately it's a form of sanction so that's definitely something at our disposal and then the other thing is is property and this list of beneficial owners of property and who exactly owns what in London and stop hiding behind you know I think Boris Johnson's talked a lot about stripping away all the layers and mm. trying to get to the bottom of, of who owns property in London so that's another big part of it so yeah I think it's going to be quite a, a good pacey fast day on Monday day in the commons where people are trying to get through this really important bit of legislation i know that people will obviously comment that this is all a bit too late in the day yeah 
but these are important measures and I know Priti Patel's pretty keen to lead on this so I think um, it's going to be quite a, a good day in the Commons on Monday. Mm. Elsewhere I think we'll probably see Boris Johnson and, and probably Liz Truss and, and Ben Wallace continuing their kind of diplomatic tour speaking to those leaders in, in the region and, and continuing those calls with Zelensky as unfortunately the, the invasion is probably going to continue into those the coming days and those images will probably get worse but hopefully they'll be these sanctions will have some sort of effect and hopefully by the time we speak next week we'll have some slightly better news to talk about hopefully uh, on this that's all we've got time for this week thanks to my my colleagues kate proctor and elna langford for joining me today our editor has been laura silver you can follow them on twitter at kate underscore m underscore proctor ella namir and at laura silver thanks to our fantastic guest damien green and most of all thanks to you for for listening we're very excited to be bringing the podcast back each week with even more great guests and stories from the roller coaster ride that is westminster politics please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to keep up to date and if you want to get in touch reach out to us on twitter at politics home or email us via news at politicshome.com if you want more great reporting and analysis from politics home and our colleagues at the house magazine you can subscribe to our daily newsletters just click on the sign up page in the top right hand corner of the website i've been alan tolhurst and this has been the rundown <laughs>